A reading from the first book of Samuel. There was a stalwart man from Benjamin named Kish, who was the son of Abiel, son of Zeor, son of Becherath, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite. He had a son named Saul, who was a handsome young man. There was no other child of Israel more handsome than Saul. He stood head and shoulders above the people. Now the asses of Saul's father, Kish, had wandered off. Kish said to his son Saul, take one of the servants with you and go out and hunt for the asses. Accordingly, they went through the hill country of Ephraim and through the land of Shalisha. Not finding them there, they continued through the land of Shaolin without success. They also went through the land of Benjamin, but they failed to find the animals. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord assured him, this is the man of whom I told you. He is to govern my people. Saul met Samuel in the gateway and said, please tell me where the seer lives. Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up ahead of me to the high place and eat with me today. In the morning before dismissing you, I will tell you whatever you wish. Then, from a flask he had with him, Samuel poured oil on Saul's head. He also kissed him, saying, The Lord anoints you commander over his heritage. You are to govern the Lord's people Israel and to save them from the grass of their enemies round about. This will be the sign for you that the Lord has anointed you commander over his heritage. The word of the Lord. Lord, in your strength, the king is glad. O Lord, in your strength, the king is glad. In your victory, how greatly he rejoices. You have granted him his heart's desire. You refuse not the wish of his lips. For you welcome him with goodly blessings. You place on his head a crown of pure gold. He asks life of you. You gave him length of days forever and ever. Great is his glory in your victory, majesty and splendor you conferred upon him. For you made him a blessing forever. You gladden him with the joy of your face.
Dominus Fobiscum, Lexio Sancti Evangelii Secundum Marcum, Jesus went out along the sea. All the crowd came to him, and he taught them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the customs post. Jesus said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed Jesus. While he was at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners sat with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Some scribes who were Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors and said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard this and said to them, those who are well do not need a physician, but the sick do. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Verbum Domini. Well, today with this Mass and homily, we wrap up our little six-day mini homiletic retreat titled The Healing Power of Jesus. If you'll recall, we began on Monday, January 8th, wherein our homily was titled Jesus' Baptism, His Public Ministry Begins. It was His baptism that set Him forth on His three years of public ministry. Day number two, Tuesday, the 9th, was Jesus' healing powers and miracles. We begin to see miracle after miracle after miracle performed in Mark's gospel, the shortest of the four gospels with only 16 chapters. On Wednesday the 10th, we had a homily titled, The Healing Continues. What can I give to Jesus for my own healing? Maybe asking for something regarding a physical healing, an emotional healing, a psychological healing if it's conducive to our salvation, and if we want all things to be done according to God's most holy will. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Not my kingdom come, my will be done, right? So then on Thursday, the 11th, we had a homily titled Conversion and Penance, Giving Even More to Jesus. So, going to Jesus for our healing of whatever kind, especially spiritual healing, because that's preeminent over the physical. We saw that yesterday when the friends of the paralytic who lowered him through the roof asked for 
or were hoping for his physical healing, but Jesus heals him spiritually first by saying, your sins are forgiven you. So the spiritual healing remains preeminent over the physical, the psychological, the emotional healings. Okay? The physical is always preeminent. We see that even in the life of the Blessed Mother. Her divine maternity as the mother of God, as great as it is, is subordinate to her perfect discipleship. Discipleship, spiritually speaking, is more important than the physical bonds. Jesus says that himself. When the woman hollers out to Jesus in the crowd, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast that fed you, he says, nay, rather, rather, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. In other words, discipleship, the spiritual life of discipleship, the discipleship of the spiritual life in following Christ and our Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is preeminent to the physical ties. Huh? So because of the healing continuing, what can we give more to Jesus? It leads us into a deeper conversion. The conversion includes a strong penance, where I talked about the beautiful reality of the sacrament of confession with its nine chief benefits. Huh? So conversion and penance, giving more to Jesus, was on Thursday. Then yesterday on Friday the 12th, we had a homily titled, The Gift of Faith, and we talked about St. Bernard of Corleone's own example of faith. Not always a holy young man, but he had a profound conversion. By the time he passed away, he had a great, great love for the Eucharist, a great, great love for the sacrament of confession, a great, great love of prayer. He would spend nights in the chapel wanting to be close to the real presence of our Lord, in the Blessed Sacrament, had a great love, even prior to his conversion, for the sick, the poor, the disenfranchised, the lonely, and had a great, great conversion. And he gives us an example of deepening faith, the gift of faith. And today's final homily, on this Saturday, the 13th, I've titled it, The Obedience of Faith, How Faith Leads Us Precisely to Obedience. And who's the preeminent example of that? The Blessed Virgin Mary, huh? In today's gospel from St. Mark chapter 2, we see a tremendous act of faith in the person of the tax collector, Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the customs post. Jesus looks at Levi, Levi looks back at him, their eyes lock, and Jesus says to him simply, follow me. And he, Levi, got up and followed him. So we see not only faith in Levi, we see an obedience of faith in Levi because he's responding to the imperative that Jesus just gave him. The imperative that Jesus just gave him, follow me. And the very next line of the gospel, he got up and followed Jesus. And Levi, of course, is St. Matthew, the apostle and evangelist, the author of what's traditionally listed as the first gospel. The YouTube series, The Chosen, has a wonderful depiction of this scene of Jesus calling Levi. Uh, I ask you to watch it as your homework assignment for today. It's a very compelling scene. It's all but five minutes long. You can find it on YouTube. Just simply put in the search bar of YouTube, The Call of Matthew or The Call of Levi. And it's a very short scene. And Jesus has some other apostles with him, Peter and Andrew, and I believe James is also there. And Peter... Uh, says, you can't call him, in reference to Levi, right after Jesus indeed calls him, and Matthew begins to leave his customs post to come out of the post to join them. And Peter's like, you, you, can't, 
you, you, can't, you can't call him. He can't be part of us. And Jesus says, why not? And Peter says, but he, he's, he's different, meaning he's a tax collector. He, he's different. And Jesus looks right at Peter and says, get used to different. Get used to different. I call whom I will. It's a very powerful scene. Very powerful scene. So again, your homework assignment. Look up the call of Matthew on The Chosen on YouTube. So St. Matthew's mention of the calling of himself is a very powerful, powerful scene. The importance of this scene, of course, is that it illustrates beautifully the obedience of faith. He immediately responds to Jesus' imperative command. Now, the everyday practical norm for the obedience of faith, the title of the sixth and final gospel of our mini-retreat, the everyday practical norm for the obedience of faith is the Blessed Virgin Mary, our Blessed Lady, our Blessed Mother. Just look at her directives to the waiters at the wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, Jesus' first public miracle following his baptism. When she turns to all the waiters, not just the head waiter, she turns to all of them. We're told that very explicitly in St. John's Gospel. She turns to all of the waiters and says, do whatever he tells you. Why is that significant that she didn't turn just to the head waiter, but to all of them? Because she's the mother of us all. It's very telling that she gives that command, do whatever he tells you, to all of the waiters present at the wedding. This is why, too, that all Marian devotion is Christocentric. It's Christ-centered, right? It points toward Jesus. A quick rehearsal of all the references to Our Lady in the New Testament brings out this theology very, very clearly. All the times that Mary is mentioned in the four Gospels, it's somehow directed towards her son. Every mention of Mary in the four Gospels is Christocentric. For Mary is never referred to in the Scriptures without at least an implicit, if not explicit, without at least an implicit reference to her divine Son. For example, fasten your seatbelt, because I'm about to mention all the times she's mentioned in the four Gospels and how her Son is explicitly or implicitly inferred in the passage. At the Annunciation with the Archangel Gabriel, Mary is asked to be Jesus' mother. St. Matthew's mention of her in his genealogy is immediately followed by the phrase, of whom Jesus was born. The account of the visitation is narrated within the context of the Christ event, the two women being pregnant. How is this that the mother of my Lord, Elizabeth says, should come and visit me, huh? St. Luke's incomparable Christmas scene focuses directly not on Mary, but on the newborn Christ child. The same is true of St. Luke's record of Our Lady's pilgrimage to the temple. It's for Christ's circumcision. And Mary's anxiety over the Christ child being lost as an adolescent is retold not from Mary's viewpoint per se, but from the aspect of a mystery involving Jesus and his mission. Did you not know that I would be in my father's house? He tells his parents at 12 years of age. It's always directed back to the Christ event every time Mary is mentioned. Even St. Luke's few sentences about Mary's home life at Nazareth are contextually related to her divine son, wherein we read in Luke 2, for example, but they did not understand what he said to them. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. What, she's, what is she pondering? She's pondering what he just told her. 
did you not know that I would be in my father's house? And right after that, he reunites with his parents. And that's it. That's all we know about his adolescent years. But he was obedient to them in the family home of Nazareth. And Mary pondered all these things in her heart, pondered these things about him, about her son. At Cana, Mary asked Jesus to perform his first recorded miracle. Again, Christ is with Mary right after that, during the visit to Capernaum. And when St. Matthew interrupts his narrative to mention Our Lady during Christ's public ministry, he is recalling an incident pertaining directly to Christ. And the final glimpse we have of Mary before the resurrection is as the Madonna beneath the foot of the cross. How Marian devotion must be essentially Christocentric can be seen in what is one of the church's principal non-liturgical prayers, namely the Most Holy Rosary. Although many of the 20 mysteries of the rosary have their own feast day on the church's universal calendar. You ever think about that? Most of the 20 mysteries have their own feast day. Some of them are solemnities on the church's universal calendar. If one really thinks carefully about it, one sooner or later must come to the conclusion that the rosary is addressed directly not to the virgin, but to Christ her son and his mysteries for us. The rosary is a series of meditations accompanied by vocal prayers on the Christ events. Mary stands merely in the background of each one. Even her assumption and her coronation are made possible because of her son right? The church, incidentally, can only preach about Mary what it reads in Revelation about her son. The most obvious truth it finds in the Bible is that Mary is truly the mother of the Lord. This is the same as saying that Mary is the mother of God. So the council of Ephesus declared in 431 AD. Thus, the very first truth one should recall regarding Our Lady is that she is not just another woman. No, on the contrary, she of all women was chosen to be the mother of the Word made flesh. But what is, does this mean actually? If we read the most pertinent Marian texts in Luke and Matthew's Gospels, we find they do not overly emphasize Our Lady's physical maternity, her motherhood, no. The scriptural emphasis is on Mary's consent, her obedience of faith, by which the eternal word became incarnate within her with her first act of obedience of faith, which was her fiat, Latin for let it be, her words to Gabriel. In other words, yes, Gabriel, I'm accepting what you're telling me. Let it be done unto me as you have said. Her yes, her fiat, at the Annunciation, that was her first obedience of faith act or her first act of obedience of faith. In other words, motherhood is not simply a physical state. It entails a deep mystery, one which implies a free personal commitment on the part of a woman, not only for the physicality of her child, but for the salvation of the soul of her child. That's important too. In Mary's case, her consent, her obedience of faith bound her physically and spiritually but the spiritual remains preeminent. Her obedience of faith bound her physically and spiritually in the closest way possible to the eternal word of God, Jesus incarnate, the savior of all mankind. Thus Mary's power to intercede for all of us before God and the devil hates her. The devil cannot stand her 
because of that fact right there. Thus, Mary's power to intercede for us all before God, her son, the second person of the Trinitarian God. There's three numbered paragraphs of the Catechism that talk about Mary's obedience of faith directly. I give them to you now. Number 148, number 149, and number 494. 148, 149, and 494. 148 says, the Virgin Mary's most perfectly embodies the obedience of faith. By faith, Mary welcomes the tidings and promise brought by the angel Gabriel, believing that, quote, with God, nothing will be impossible, and so giving her assent, her fiat. Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Elizabeth greeted her. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. It is for this faith that all generations have called Mary blessed. Number 149 of the Catechism. Throughout her life and until her last ordeal when Jesus, her son, died on the cross, Mary's faith never wavered. She never ceased to believe in the fulfillment of God's word. And so the church venerates in Mary the purest realization of faith, hence the obedience of faith. And number 494, St. Irenaeus, the great church father from the early centuries, he says, being obedient, Mary became the cause of our salvation for herself and for the whole human race. She said yes. Hence, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert the knot of Eve's disobedience was, you, was untied by Mary's obedience. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith. That's powerful. Are you familiar with the devotion of Our Lady, undoer of knots? Think of that devotion. St. Irenaeus says, being obedient, Mary became the cause of salvation for herself and for the whole human race. Hence, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the virgin Eve bound through her disbelief, Mary loosened by her faith, by saying yes. Comparing her with Eve, the church fathers call Mary the mother of the living and frequently claim death through Eve, but life through Mary. This is why Mary's called the new Eve. You ever notice that Ave, like Ave Maria, A-V-E, Ave Maria, is Eva backwards, which is Eve in the Latin? Ave, Eva. Mary is the new Eve. What Eve lost through her disobedience of faith in the book of Genesis, Mary untied that knot of disobedience through her obedience of faith. I close with this, regarding the Blessed Virgin Mary and her assistance toward us in the fight against evil, all kinds of evil, personal, social, you name it. Because Mary alone, of all persons, human persons, fully human persons, Mary doesn't have an ounce of divinity in her. Because Mary alone, of all human persons, has the power needed to defeat demonic evil, we seek her motherly protection and intercession. 
Only two individuals in sacred scripture are said to have the fullness of grace. Jesus himself, the God-man, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, in John chapter 1, and Mary is said to be full of grace in Luke chapter 1. And so Vatican II in Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, says, quote, Mary, who because of this extraordinary grace of being full of grace, is far greater than any other creature on earth or in heaven, she leads us in the battle against evil. And the devil hates her. Incorporate devotion to her in your life. Ask for her intercession and her protection. She's the mother of us all. And the perfect example of the obedience of faith. God bless you.